On today's episode, we're going to meet a couple that are on year three of a one-year adventure. Now, if you're thinking, geez, haven't I heard this somewhere before? Yeah, it's a common thread. There's a lot of people who get on their motorcycle and head off for an adventure and end up staying way longer than what they planned. So what does that tell us? Well, it may tell us that there's something really amazing out there on the road. Maybe that's the key. Get on your bike and ride. We also have an incredible rider skills segment coming up today with Brett Tax, where we're not going to talk about riding your bike at all. That leaves you scratching your head. Stick around for more. We got lots coming up. I'm coming to you from a remote spot right now in British Columbia beside a rushing river. And if you were here right now, you'd see this gorgeous scene of forest all around me, a rushing river in our campsite. My studio is the Jeep, and that is our setup for the summertime. For this summer, we are cruising around the back roads of British Columbia, having an amazing time finding gold rush trails and ghost towns. And we've sort of just started on this, but we're going to be doing the show all summer long just like this. And we're also going to be giving you some updates on what we find because we're finding incredible adventure motorcycle riding areas. We're finding some routes that are amazing. We'll be posting those. You can follow us on our backroadwanders.org page. And of course, we have a Facebook page for that as well. So you should probably drop by there and follow the page and see what we've got going on and uh, follow in the, in the coming weeks because we're going to have a lot more going on as well. We had a great grizzly bear sighting that we posted on there. But stick around. We got a lot coming up today. I'm Jim Martin, and this is Adventure Rider Radio. I'm Graham Field. I'm Sam Manicum. Hi, everybody. This is Ted Simon. Hi, this is Walter Colbatch, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. This episode is brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles, serving adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories available online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free. That's maxbmw.com. And Best Rest Products, home of Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire and Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. You know, whether you're on the road or off the road, you'll need a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system and will inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, and get this, it comes with a lifetime warranty. It's the pump we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Visit them at CyclePump.com. That's CyclePump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles, tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. Green Chili Adventure Gear is also the exclusive USA distributor for Outback Motor Tech, a Canadian company that specializes in high-quality protection for motorcycles. Visit them at www.greenchiliadv.com. Greenchiliadv.com. Well, you've probably had the feeling before when you go for a ride, you know, you maybe head out for just a few minutes or maybe a half an hour, maybe a couple hours. And the next thing you know, you start to ride and it just feels right. It feels good. It's one of those days where the weather is nice. The warm air hits your face. The bike feels amazing. And I know it's mechanical and it can, and it, and it should always run the same, but you know, there's days out there where it just feels right. Everything clicks. You go into your corner, the corner feels beautiful. Everything is just clicking along and purring on your motorcycle. Well, that happens to a lot of people who go on extended journeys, just as it did for Petra and Anders Stridefelt. They left on a one-year adventure, and over three years later, they're still on the road. 
Then And they're not looking at stopping either because at the point that I'm talking to them, they're about to uh, get on a boat and head back to the UK for visits and then head to Africa, which many consider to be the, the ultimate adventure motorcycle destination. So there's something about it, isn't there? There's something about the bike. We sort of know the feeling that those of us who haven't done one of these great long journeys of getting out there and feeling it drag you further in. But it seems that those that break away, that make that jump into the abyss, so to speak, of travel by motorcycle, that seem to get caught up and they just keep going. And you can hear it in Petra and Andrew's voice here. They're not missing anything. Uh, I'm Petra Streetfeld and uh, I'm Swedish, but normally I live in England. I've done that since 10, 13 years back, really. Since, oh, yeah. And been on the road for over three years now. Yeah. And I'm Anders, her husband, and uh, same here. I'm from Sweden, lived in the UK for, uh, moved to the UK 13 years back and been on the road for three years. And uh, I previously worked within a pharmaceutical company, but uh, now we don't have any employment any longer. After Petra and Anders' three sons moved out, basically they got bored and decided they wanted to travel the world. So they sold their house, they sold their car, most of their belongings, all within five months of making the decision to go on a trip and took off. It was May 24th, 2013, when they hit the road. Anders and Petra, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Great to have you here. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Thank you. And you guys are in South America right now? Yeah, in Sao Paulo. In Brazil. Brazil, yeah. So I'm just going to try and get this straight. So for the listener who doesn't know your story, basically you're on year three of a one-year adventure. Is that correct? Yeah, uh, yeah, we were supposed to be out one, one and a half years, but the world is a little bit bigger <laughs> than and we thought. And the planning isn't that great, <laughs> no. so, so we missed a bit. Well, I really like the sounds of your planning, actually, because it sounds like you, you didn't do a lot of planning, which I'm, I'm a big fan <laughs> of, really. But, but you have three sons, they moved out of the house, and then not long after, you guys moved out. Yeah, yeah, five months. We, we couldn't stand it more than five months, and then we just like, oh gosh, we have to do something, so... We sold everything and the house and, yeah, everything really, and set off. Petra is a really restless soul. <laughs> <laughs> so you guys decided to sell your house and quit your jobs. It all sounds so permanent. Why the, like, the, the mass change? Why not just escape for a couple of months? I think we want to get away from the day-to-day hassle with the utility bills. So if we rented it out the house, it's going to be we need to have constant contact with some someone looking after us so we just want to leave everything behind and only have what we have with us and it's a great feeling to that yeah. you, you only have the bike that is your home and also you have the freedom to do sort of whatever you like after the trip uh, it, it's, it's just a, a beginning and I mean I've, I have loved to move I've moved so many times in my life and I I get bored quite quickly but Quite a lot of women, they, or a couple, they kind of break up. But I, I kind of stuck with Anderson, you know, for the last 30 years. And But I kind of move on instead to different places. <laughs> <laughs> you kind of stuck with him for 30 years? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that sounded really bad. But <laughs> 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 okay. But you have it on rec- we have that on record now. <laughs> yeah, we, we do. <laughs> And you sold everything off. You sold a lot of your belongings off and everything so that you can throw all your, your stuff on your motorcycles, which you guys already had bikes before this. Yeah. yeah. We had, I have the 650 and you had a 1200 Adventure. Yeah. Yeah. 
So we, we decided to go for the same bikes. So both went for BMW F 800 GS. So we have could minimize the, the spare parts we need to bring on the trip. Right, makes a lot of sense. And when I think now you've got you've got over a hundred thousand kilometers at least on one of them, don't you? Oh yeah, yeah. We have on, on mine. Mine was completely new when we when we took Just off, and, off yeah. and now it's one hundred and ten thousand kilometers. It's on the clock. Yeah. Wow, that, that's great. So where did you go to begin with? You you left home, you packed up the bikes, and what was the first thing you did? We actually went to a Hub UK Horizon Unlimited meet, and we had a big send off there that we yeah. went. You know, we weren't prepared for that, but it just happened. So, so that was great yeah. to start with. And uh, then we took off and rode to Sweden, actually, first, to say goodbye to all, you know, friends and two of our sons and, you know. And, and uh, then we went south and took the ferry down to Poland and went through Europe before we headed east. So you didn't have any any fears when you're leaving. What, was there any apprehension? Because like, especially with this this trip that you're making around to say goodbye to everybody, was there apprehension when you left? No, never, no. <laughs> never. I mean, of course, when we kind of said goodbye to our sons, and that I mean that was sad, and I, I kind of cried. And oh, of but it, I mean, never. We never kind of thought. Never once I've thought that. Oh, maybe we, you know, shouldn't have done that. No. It is an easy life to be on the road because you can you can always stop and go back home. If it's not yeah. a life crisis. Yeah, that's. I think it's. I mean, we met so many poor people. They don't have a choice. What they do, oh, yeah. they're kind of stuck. It, but we, we have. We always have the choice to go back to say no. We don't want to do this anymore. We can go back. And and I've I've kind of had that my whole life because I moved a lot. And that's just when I moved to England. I said, oh, I can always go back. Is mm. is we have the choice that. You know, people in the it's, Western world—it's <laughs> it's a luxury we have. And Petra, you sound very adaptable, as you're saying. You know, you've moved around all the time. Moving doesn't doesn't bother you. Doesn't rattle you at all. No, 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 <laughs> <laughs> not at all. It's it's more of a problem to stay in one place for too long. <laughs> you started out. You're going for a year now. You're on year three, and I don't know. From what I'm seeing, uh, what I've read, and and just talking to you guys, it doesn't sound like you're you're finishing up tomorrow. No. We are actually in uh, in a month. We're going to take a freight ferry from Uruguay back to Europe uh, to ride a little bit in Europe and uh, see some friends, go to some events. Uh, but then we head to Africa after that. Wow. So you, it's, there's a long adventure ahead of you still. It could be years. Yeah, yeah. I hope so. <laughs> and do you make money while you're on the road or have you just quit working altogether? No, we we write some articles. It's not a lot, but it takes a little bit. I think I hope we can do a little bit more because I think we need to get some money in soon. Because mm. we 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 were quite lucky when we left because we had the house. We saw that, and we had savings. And also, Anders had a redundancy package for my previous job. So. Yeah, so we we were quite lucky with that. When you're traveling, are you camping or are you staying in hotels, or how are you doing the whole thing? We, we try to camp as much as possible to, to save the money here. So so we actually live, uh, it was more expensive when we lived in the house than now living on the road. So we spend, yeah, spend less in a month. It's more expensive to live in your house than it is on the road, yeah. is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah definitely. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> we kind of free camp much, so we don't pay, but, you know, sometimes you, you really need to have a shower and stuff. So, you know, sometimes you stay camping. Sites and yeah. and now we're lucky in in Sao Paulo. A guy 
uh, invited us to stay in his uh, apartment. So we stay there. He moved out to a friend and we have his his apartment. So. <laughs> Wow. You've run into all types of things like this. I did see that um, somewhere in Russia you stayed with a bike gang. Can you tell us about that? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, we we bumped into, uh, it was in Novosibirsk, I think. We we came to play some changing tires, so we put on some nobbies because we're going down to Mongolia. And we were invited to stay with a biker gang. It was uh, Wild River, I think it was called. And it was really hardcore (laughs) ride. But they were brilliant. Yeah, they were very nice people. They're looking very rough but uh, <laughs> when you get to know them it's really nice guys so they were they were an actual bike gang like as in like outlaws criminals that sort of thing yeah, they look like it though <laughs> <laughs> and they drank a lot of vodka and stuff yeah <laughs> <laughs> so we had some parties with them and yeah. i don't really dr- like to drink that strong alcohol but we had we had quite a lot there because you want to be polite as well don't you <laughs> You were also invited to stay with people, I mean, I guess in a whole bunch of places, but one of the notes I saw here was uh, about Honduras. Yeah. And you were saying that's the first time you had to have bodyguards. Tell us about that. That was was brilliant. We had been contacted by uh, one guy in Mexico already. He went following us on on the blog and he said, if you come to Honduras, just contact me and if you need any help or anything. And when we actually were in Honduras, after kind of two weeks, we decided to leave Honduras and we just got a message from him to say, why don't you come and stay in our summer house? And I mean, we didn't know the guy or anything. So we're just like, oh gosh, you know, Honduras, you heard so much about it. But we said, oh, what the heck we go. So we went there and this, yeah, it turned out that this guy had kind of quite loaded with money, I think, because his summer house was beautiful and he had four bodyguards and, and he sent two of them with us when we were looking for a, a you know. There was a porti, old Portuguese fort and they sent his bodyguard with us. So. <laughs> so we were kind of walking around with two bodyguards and that's never happened to me before. <laughs> with guns and stuff like. <laughs> it's kind of unsettling too, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It was, it was a lot of guns there, but uh, we, we never felt threatened or anything. No. So it's just a, no. yeah, it's. It's a strange country, but it was really very like, nice people. I know they have a lot of problems, but I don't think as a tourist, you don't have much problems. I mean, it's more the drug cartels and stuff. They kind of the inter- fighting. Internal fights, They don't yeah. really want to hurt tourists because if they hurt tourists, they will get more, you know, Attention. people looking. Yeah, so no, I think we felt completely safe. Was there anything, while you're traveling on the strip, is there anything that, that turned out completely different than what you imagined before you left? Completely different. I, I, for, for me, I, I think it was... That is so that we're so alike around the world. Everybody's having a humor, and uh, everybody's so um, friendly. friendly yeah, and yeah. help you help you out. If you're a biker, you you get into the biker community, and you get so na- easy get contact. And uh, I, I, yeah. I, I'm amazed about how, how incredible people are. And people will help you, and they don't ask anything back. It's just like very very poor people. They still invite you to share the kind of the little food, food they have. And yeah. that is, I mean, that makes you, you know, makes you get a hope. For the that is, there's a hope for the future, yeah. When you say people help you out, are you talking about other bikers or just people in general? Oh, in general, in general, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, bikers are, bikers are actually kind of like a big family in the world. Wherever you go, if there's bikers, they always are. But even people... Yeah. Especially in India, I think. In India, they were absolutely amazing. We absolutely love India, though we felt a bit crazy sometimes with the traffic and, you know, the intense, the people were on you 
all the time, but it, they were so, so friendly. Yeah. You had a collision in India? Uh, yes. <laughs> I'd had a collision up in the Himalayas, actually. So we, we, we were up in Himalayas riding and went over there. They, they call it the highest road in the world. So it was about 5,600 meters on the altitude. So it was very high up. And uh, when we came over to the Nubra Valley, that was on the other side, uh, we, we just come around the corner. I was in the front, and uh, it came an armored vehicle there, and uh, I, I couldn't avoid it. So we, I just had a head on collision, but it was... But it was quite fine. I just have to tell you, we have gone through water crossings and, you know, everything. And this was on the road that was perfectly fine. And it was probably just a few centimeters with water. And Anders turned out so he wouldn't like to go in that one. And that the car came. So it was kind of a little bit stupid. But <laughs> yeah. yeah. I've been on a challenging road for a long while. You maybe relaxed a bit. And I maybe relaxed too much there and yeah. forgot about it. I was uh, behind and I just saw it. I was just saw it happening and I just saw all the kind of plastic things and everything on the front of the bike was just going scattering on and Anders went down and I was just like, oh, how the heck am I going to get Anders and the bike down from Himalayas? But, but, but um, if, you, if you can't repair it with duct tape, you don't have enough duct tape. No. <laughs> <laughs> so what, were you fine? I mean, you just got up and, and you're riding again? Was the bike damaged? It sounds like uh, it was. No, it, I, I was absolutely fine. And the bike, damage on the bike was more the plastic and things because the armored vehicle was quite tall. So, so it hit my beak and took the, my beak out and the headlight and the, the front screen. So the fork and the, the front wheel were absolutely fine. So it was just a plastic thing. So that could be taped up again and with duct tape and some cable stripes. And then we have two head torches uh, we put on uh, in the front so we could ride when it was dark as well. <laughs> And did you end up replacing the parts, or are they still wired together? No, we actually, when we came down to New Delhi after three weeks or so, I, I rode well, three weeks like this, mm-hmm. and we came down to New Delhi, uh, we contacted BMW in, in Alaska, because we know we're going to ship the bike to Alaska from there. So when we arrived here to the motorcycle store in Anchorage, we I had a big pile there with uh, new things to fit on my bike, so it's become like new and yeah. shiny. Yeah. <laughs> Worked out really well. <laughs> How have the bikes been overall? Have you had problems with them? No, they've been. I mean, I'm, I must say, I'm, I'm, they've been fantastic. They have. Yeah. I mean, we have the fuel pumps, three fuel pumps. Well, that's easy, done. You know, you just find a car fuel pump and put in. So that's easy. But you yeah. went through three fuel pumps. Yeah. Oh, yeah. On, on one bike or on both? Like for both bikes? Both. Uh, two fuel pumps of mine. I'm on them Petros. Yeah. Hmm. That's odd. So yeah. Any idea why the fuel pump goes? I think it's a poor quality of, of, of the fuel. Oh, so, wow, that's interesting. Yeah, but it's an easy fix and it's about $20, $30, depending on which country you are. And it's easy to done as well, so yeah. that's not the big... And my my uh, shock absorber, the rear shock absorber went in Panama and then I rode with it, with that one for 200... 2,500 kilometers. Yeah, Whoa. so that, that, was, that was not fun. Then <laughs> I, I was kind of thinking, no, I, don't, I just want to go back home. It's not fun anymore. Was it your stock shock or did you have an aftermarket one? Yeah. It was a stock yeah. shock. Now we replaced them and have some really great shocks here. How many miles uh, did you have on it when you had the broken shock? Could uh, it be 70 or 80,000? 70 or 80,000, I guess, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, kilometers. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you're in miles. 
Wow, twenty five hundred kilometers is a long way to ride with the, with the broken yeah. air shock. <laughs> yeah, it was. <laughs> what other things have happened to you um, on the trip that you'd like to talk about? We had some fun in Mexico when Petro was chased by a, a, a horny bull. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Sandra, I realized that Petro can ride in sand very, very well. So. Yeah, I've always hated sand. And we were down in uh, Baja, uh, California. Baja California in the very south on the kind of east side. And it, it was so sandy. It was after this uh, really bad weather they had that, that kind of... Yeah, tornado. Tornado, has yeah. There, yeah. So we were there riding and I really, really struggled, you know. I find it, you know, just like, oh, I don't want to do this anymore. And uh, then suddenly in the sand, I just like, I saw some cows and, you know, bulls was just next to them. And this passed, it was no problem. And then I passed and I just see one of the bulls really started to run after me. So I, I've never been riding that fast in sand ever. <laughs> So it was, it was quite funny. Anders thought it was really funny because yeah. he was <laughs> laughing. His, you know, <laughs> it, it could have been really scary. Actually, yeah, it could have gone bad. It yeah. could have. But he, I could see in my mirror that you know, the bull turned around and then he kind of jumped on a on a cow instead. So I'm quite happy I was not. <laughs> what was it, what's the deal in Cambodia where you're you're trying to escape from the mob? Yeah, that was that was actually the only oh, yeah, time yeah. we really felt kind of threatened. It was uh, it was a girl who on a very small motorbike that kind of ride into me, so it wasn't my fault. And she f- gone down, she was fall over and hurt her leg, and uh, it was just just took a few minutes, and we had loads of men, of course, round us, yeah. and they just want money, and they just like two hundred dollars, two hundred dollars they were asking for, and I was just like, it was my fault. It wasn't my fault, but I don't, I mean, of course I want to help the girl. I mean, she was a really poor girl, and mm-hmm. but they were kind of on about it all the time and really, really aggressive, I must say. And uh, But then he, this was going on for quite a while, and also the mark that she had done on my pannier, they tried to kind of rub it away several times. And, uh, and then after a while I saw the girl had disappeared, so she was obviously fine. And... Uh, we were just like, I said to Anders, because we still had the helmets on, and I just said to Anders, we just have to leave. So we kind of quickly just started the bikes, and there was kind of people, they were standing in front of us, and we were just riding, and I was so scared to hit someone. And we had someone hunting us, chasing us for quite a while after that. So I've never been riding that fast on that kind of road before. No, it was a bit scary, yeah. yeah. And then afterwards, I just said to Anders, oh my God, now we run away from the police and everything and they will catch me and put me in a prison. We have to get out of Cambodia as soon as possible. But uh, I calmed down a little bit and we stayed for another four weeks. And, and uh, Petra said she picture herself that when we come to border, there's going to be like a big wanted sign. There. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was, uh, no, that, no, it was actually, I was, I was a little bit scared. I must say, I'm, I, it's not much that scared me, but that was uh, one yeah. moment. But, do you suppose they do that because uh, they see these bikes come through and they know that when something happens like that, they can get money? Is that yeah. what motivates it? Yeah, I think it is. Yeah. I think they is. And, and, and I mean, to be honest, I mean, these were in a, in a small kind of village and, and it was poor people. And in one way, I don't blame them. You know, we come with these expensive motorbikes and riding there. So it's I really, sometimes I wish I had a, a very old you know, bike mm. that they can't see that doesn't stick out money. So much, yeah. yeah, because you feel guilty when you have yeah. when you have that kind of stuff. But 
that's the way it is, I guess. Yeah, you have to, I mean, it has to look incredibly rich to them. I mean, it's stuff that they could never afford and all the, the fancy colors and, and items bolted onto the bike. And yeah, it has to be yeah. just surreal for them. But yeah. it's never happened before that not, someone tried to to steal or do anything with us. Most often, even kind of bad guys, think I think they think they, this is quite brave to do what we do. So they yeah. can't, in a way, they look up to us. They don't want to... I don't know. It's, it, no, they, we have been fine with it. Some people generally are very honest. Yeah. 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 So I think if you have a bike and traveling, it's less, uh, I think it's more often you get robbed if you don't have a bike, if mm. that makes sense. I know mm. people on bikes have get robbed, but I don't think that's so manageable. No, I don't think that is common. No. You, you mean like there's some sort of respect for someone riding a bike that you, yeah. you, you yeah. get yeah, just yeah, because respect. you're riding? Huh. Yeah, I think yeah, respect it feels, is. feels like that. What advice would you guys have for anyone else considering doing something like what you've done here? It's just if if you want to do it, do it. And yeah. I always say to her, if I can do it, everyone can do it. I mean, I've never, ever been off-road in my whole life before I went and I came to Mongolia. And that's nothing I really recommend. But if you want to do it, do it. If I, can, if I survived, you will survive. It's so common you hear people say this who do what you're doing. I think there's there must be some sort of realization when you get out there of just how easy it is. Yeah. Yeah. It's not difficult. No. It's not. It's, and it's so nice and helpful people around the world. So they, they will help you with everything yeah. if you have any problems. And I mean, there's food everywhere. There's hospitals everywhere. Yeah. And We've if, been if, to few. And <laughs> if, if, if they have cars, vehicles, you can find petrol or gasoline. So, yeah. So it's no problem. So. What about precautions? Are there any things that you would tell people, look, you know, do it, but you've got to be aware of this? Common sense, I would say. Yeah. And uh, try to keep the bike safe during the night. So we try to, uh, the one of the most important thing for us is when we stay in a place to keep a safe parking. So, so we have parked in so many uh, hostel receptions yeah. or in the back guards when they're locked in. And uh, we also have a big chain on my bike here. So if we can't get a fully secure place, we'd be secure them by a chain between yeah. the two bikes. So they are locked together. What do you mean common sense? Yeah, just don't be stupid and go out in the middle of the night. If it's dark and you're out flashing with a camera and all sorts of things, just have a low yeah. profile. Don't mm. stick out and show them that you have a lot of money. I think that is just... yeah. The opportunity makes the, 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 the theft, so, so, yeah. It's pretty tough, though, to hide that you have a lot of money in comparison to the people that you're visiting, though, isn't it? I mean, even when they come yeah. across your campsite, it, it's got to look extremely expensive. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But, but yeah, when we're we, camping, we try to hide as well, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah. So we don't, not visible to so many people. So. Yeah, when we wild camp, we try to go in, you know, in hide, the hide forest in the and hide, yeah. So how do you find your spots for wild camping? Oh, that can take some while. <laughs> that is tricky. I mean, I'm, we grow up in Sweden where you can go wild camping anywhere. Uh, but there have been, you know, but we heard that it's not possible to wild camp when you go down to uh, Ushuaia. I mean, we wild camp yeah. most of the places there. We find small spots. and Yeah, find some, so, see, so an old house or ruin from the house or something. You're just hiding behind that one or yeah. inside the, the ruined house. Or, yeah. So what do you do? You just drive down roads until you find some sort of road that looks lesser used and then start looking for yeah, a, yeah, yeah. a piece of property, a bit of woods you can go into, something like that? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Sometimes it's just, you know, when you can't go down a road or something because the fences are... But if you just find some bushes and trees, like, you just sneak around and try to hide everything behind that. 
any big tips to save somebody time or money if they're going to do something like this? Something you've done and you've went afterwards and realized, oh, wow, we didn't have to do this. Oh, uh, save money. That's something we, I mean, if we, for example, in a city, we hardly ever take a bus or never, ever taxi and things. We always walk. I mean, walk is good for you. You're born with two legs. So you're supposed to use them. <laughs> so that's something we kind of, you, we, yeah. we save quite a lot. And, and we don't do a lot of tourist attractions. Some things you need to do because it's, you know, you, I mean. Machu Picchu. Machu Picchu and things like you need. But you can't find ways to do it cheap. You don't need to go kind of with a guide and, you know, do the expensive. You can find cheaper way. And, and it's always someone else who's done that. And, and ma- maintenance work on the bikes. You can do the maintenance. You can do the, the easy parts yourself, like oil changes. And, yeah. Uh, we didn't the, know anything about, you know, when we started. We've, we've never done any maintenance, but we've learned and we do yeah. most, most, most of, by ourselves yeah. now, yeah. And then what do you do? You take it into a dealer for the big stuff? Yeah, we had yeah. it in for a dealer now because we need to do, we have done over 100,000 both bikes here and uh, we never uh, even checked or adjusted the, the valves on them. So, so we need to go in for an adjustment here or check it out. So. You're over 100,000 and they've never been done? No, no we no. didn't know we had to. And they're both running fine still. Yeah, yeah. oh my God. My, since I took that out, because they, they, unfortunately they put it together a little bit wrong in the garage but, uh, and they damaged the, what do you call these? The, the, the valves so was a bit bent. But yeah. The four exhaust valves were a bit bent. Yeah. So we, and after that, they kind of knew that they've done that because they tried to start it and it sounded really, really bad. It didn't work to start. And they noticed they've done that, you know, made the mistake themselves. So they actually, so for two days, they worked on the bike and sorted everything out. And they even changed oil and oil filter, everything for free. So they were a fantastic garage, yeah. I must say. So, so it's, now it's... As good as new, no? It's good as new, yeah. <laughs> what is it? I missed what you said there at the start. Why were they do, Why were they working on your engine? We, we want to check the valves, uh, the, 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 the valve clearance uh, yeah. gap on, yeah. So um, when they put, put it together, they checked the valves and, and they pulled them together. And when they pulled them together, they had the, the chain was one... Oh, uh, I see. Oh, tooth, wow. uh, uh, and so it wasn't fully aligned. Right. So then the damage develops when they try to start it afterwards. Yeah. But I mean, that's we always say is everyone can make a mistake. Yeah. Sure. And as long as they sort it out, and they were very professional, take so, the responsibility. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Which they did. So no, that was fantastic. They were really good guys. So, so it's good as you know. You mentioned fuel, but yeah, but poor fuel and you're thinking that may have been a contributor to the, the fuel pumps dying prematurely. You've got a lot of poor fuel around. Are you trying to get premium or are you just burning regular in the bike? We have um, remapped both the bikes here so it's running on lower octane. Oh, so, so you can do that electronically on the BMW. So, so we, we, we try to get the, the, the premium where we can, but if you can't, it's not a big deal. So running fine on, on lower octones yeah. as well. Right. And did you notice a big power decrease when you had the bikes remapped? I don't feel a difference at all, I must say. No. Oh, really? We might, we might do when we come back because we're more experienced riders. Yeah, yeah, maybe. <laughs> but at the time, we didn't but, really. But it's more than enough on the, those bikes we're riding here. So, so. Yeah, they've got plenty of power already, don't they? Yeah, the only time yeah. I, I felt a bit that, that it's, uh, the, the power went down a bit, it's when at very, very high altitude, you can feel that they are not as powerful as they used to be down on the ocean level. Mm. 
Was there any good stories that you had that you really had in your mind that you wanted to tell? No, it's just, you know, people who invite you everywhere and learn how to cook Indian food and how to, you know, it, it's like, it's, it's just that. And I just, I just want to say to people who want to do it, do it. You just have one life. Go for it. Yeah, I think that is very good advice. If someone wants to see what you're doing and maybe follow you, where can they find you? We have a, a blog. It's two bikers one world dot uh, com. com, and we are on Facebook mostly. We're Twitter. We just opened an Instagram uh, as well on two bikers one world, but we just started that one. So yeah. all the fun of trying to keep up on social media at the same time you're riding an adventure. It's not. It's not easy. I mean, it was easier before when it only was Facebook, but now it's. Yes, yeah, I know. There's, there's so many things to keep up on. Yeah, and I don't want to get too stressed out about that. I want to travel. That's yeah. uh, you know. But there's so much things to... you need to learn as well here about hashtags and how you do I that. Know. Yeah, <laughs> but now we're going to be on a ferry from Uruguay to Europe, and it would take four or five weeks. We have no Wi-Fi, no nothing. So hopefully we can make a lot of films and stuff because we have films three years of film. Of film. Yeah. So. <laughs> Four so or five weeks on the ferry? Do you, yeah, no, you, do you have a birth? It might kill me. I don't know yet. <laughs> That's a long it's a, it's time. A, it is a roll on roll off ferry from going from Montevideo, going all the way to Belgium, Belgium, yeah. and uh, Europe. And I've been on a ferry before. I think the longest I've been on a ferry is thirty six hours. And you know, the last twelve hours, I was climbing the walls because I'm really restless. So we'll see how this will be interesting. See, you know, that would make a good video in itself. You take your GoPro camera and you just film yourself right from the start, right to the end when the ferry docks again. That would be <laughs> that's interesting. A, that's a really good. Th- I'm actually going to do that. Thank yeah. you for that. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure like, I'm going to show anyone, but I will do that. Well, well if you post <laughs> it, you'll have to send us an email so I can see this because I, I'm curious. I, I think that's an incredibly long time on a ferry. When you said the ferry, I thought you were just assume, I thought you were just making a mistake of saying you know you're you're putting it on a boat and you're going to fly over and sort of meet your bikes over there. No. I didn't realize you're riding. No, with them. it's too expensive for us. You know, we are, we, we want to keep the cost down, so we're doing the the cheapest way we can. So, what's the ferry and cost? I, you know, and also the thing is that I get really, really seasick. And uh, so that will be also, we'll see how wow. I can deal with that. We wow. took the, the a little sailboat from uh, Panama. Panama to Colombia, me and Anders. And it was another guy, Brendan from, from Ireland. And he was much younger than we are. And so we bought some beers and things. Like that. We're going to have really fun for three days now on this and have, you know, drinking Going and like sitting Caribbean there. Sea, yeah. yeah. Anders and me, we were kind of laying down throwing up or seasick <laughs> and Brendan the young guy he was fun and drank his beer we had to carry the beer off the boat again <laughs> <laughs> no and you have four to five weeks of that coming up wow that, um, that'll be interesting that uh, that could be a completely different experience for you I know you yeah. see <laughs> but I hope this flight where I'm not going to move that much as the sailboat did so. no Anders Petra, great to meet you, and thanks for coming on to Adventure Rider Radio and sharing your story. Oh, thank, thank you. Thank you very really much. really enjoyed that. Thank you very much. And you can follow Petra and Anders by visiting their website, twobikersoneworld.com, and of course they're on Facebook with the same name. And that link will be in our show notes. Back in November 2015, Cycle World magazine wrote these words. The best hardcore saddlebag and tank bag solution we've found is from Giant Loop. 
There are cheaper solutions to carrying stuff, but these American-made pieces have been over mountains and across deserts with no issues. That's a statement that packs a lot of weight from Cycle World magazine. Now, you've heard us talk about Giant Loop on here before, but I'll tell you what I want you to do. Drop by their website, giantloopmoto.com, and go to their tank bag solutions part of their website. Look at the tank bags they have. You want to see some durable, really well-crafted tank bags that are going to stick on your bike like they were meant to be there. Giant Loop has them. They've got small bags, which are great if you stand on your pegs a lot. And then, of course, they've got the, the bigger adventure bags that, that have uh, the expandable portions of them. Go by their website. Check it out. If you're going to buy something from them, use the promo code ARR. It'll get you free shipping within the U.S., but anytime you're dealing with them, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. You know, Aerostitch says the best way to ride more is to make your riding the easiest, fastest way to get from A to B. Simple commuting, errands, long-distance adventure riding, whatever. 33 years, Aerostitch has been designing, making, and selling equipment that makes riding everywhere, anywhere, in all weather, safer, more comfortable, more fun. I'm living proof because I'm riding with some of their gear right now. Go by their website, www.aerostitch.com forward slash ARR. And please put in the forward slash ARR so they know it came from Adventure Rider Radio. Anytime you're dealing with them, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. I want to mention to you again about the catalog that they have out now because I'm sitting with it in my hand now. Almost 300 pages of fun for motorcyclists. And if you go to page 158, now if you haven't got your catalog, you're going to have to drop by their website and order it. They'll ship it right to your door. But on page uh, 158, I believe, it, oh sorry, 159, they've got a Grip Pro Trainer. Now, ask yourself this, have you ever come out of the winter time and found that you don't have the clutch grip that you had the year before? You know, you're, you're going to pull in the clutch, especially when you're doing your slow, working around stuff, maneuvering with your adventure bike, and you find you, you just haven't got the strength in your wrist. Well, this is the way that you maintain and increase the strength in your wrist um, and, and your grip is by using something like this. It's like a, a small little donut. Page 159 on their catalog. One of the other things I want to point out that I come across, page 164, that's something I think everybody should have right in the rain notebooks. Aerostitch doesn't make them, but they certainly got them in, in their catalog. And uh, they're a great thing to have when you're out on a trip because you want to make notes. Let's face it, we forget most of what we do in life. And the way to remember it is take a photo, make a note, you know, and, and you have the memory stored forever. They've also got some great toaster on uh, on page 244 that you should look at. If you've never towed before, you want to look at Aerostitch makes these. Aerostitch makes great gear. I've said it many times before. Just look at anything. Anything you get a hold of. You see somebody riding with Aerostitch gear, stop and ask them about it. Walk over and look at it. Look at the stitching. Feel the thing. It's just incredible stuff. www.aerostitch.com forward slash ARR. Let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Now that was to center the mind before we enter the realm of education. A rider skills segment with Brett Tax. We're talking about 
not riding our bike today, which I'm pretty stoked about because I think this is something that well, I just haven't seen covered anywhere else. So I was pretty excited when Brett brought this to us. How you doing, Brett? I'm doing absolutely awesome. What are we talking about today? Well, what I want to talk about today is a, a subject that many riders struggle with, and that's just maneuvering their bikes when they're parked, getting it into lobbies, turning it around in the garage, turning it around on a trail, getting it on center stand. These are things that are tasks that we really have to deal with, but we don't really address very often. I mean, I've seen people maneuver bikes before that are really slick at it. I can think of one guy at a dealership, and I, I saw him just grab the bikes, and he whips around. It's so effortless. I mean, he made it look so easy. Well, and I think as we as we look at this whole thing, often motorcyclists or, or travelers are very intimidated by the size and the weight of the bike, and they're very nervous about moving them. And that's the, that's the beginning of the struggle is, is when they have that, and they don't understand that the bike doesn't have to be heavy. So we're talking about loading them onto trailers, vehicles, and, and you mentioned in, to me earlier into hotel lobbies, which I think is, is very key. Um, the garage, any, any place you're, you're maneuvering the bike around, basically where you're off it, correct? Correct. And, and that's, uh, it can be anything from putting on center stand to do a chain maintenance to pulling into the lobby to keep it secure for the night. So here we go. By listening to this, you're going to be able to show your buddies just how slick you are at maneuvering your motorcycle around. So where do we start? Okay, we're going to start with a really cool trick. This is one of the the things we do for new riders that come in to do any of our our adventure uh, training expeditions or our training camps, even in our in our regular off-road school. And it's really to get people to understand the balance of the motorcycle. And what they need to understand is all of these motorcycles, no matter how heavy they are, have a particular point where they have neutral balance, where there's absolutely no weight to hold them up. In fact, you can hold up your, your large uh, GS or your Super Tenere by just one finger on the top of something as simple as a mirror, a windshield, or a turn signal. And a lot of the um, the places, like a lot of states and provinces, when you're going to get your driver's license, they sort of touch on this very briefly, don't they? They they have this sort of built into the test in a lot of places where you actually have to walk around your motorcycle and hold your motorcycle up by just using your hands on the signals or the seat or whatever it is as you move around. Well, I know we do it for training, and and here in the states, uh, you know, not not to be a, a poo poo, but uh, most of our testing. Is, is pretty insufficient. Um, they just really want to make sure that you have basic control and you can ride around a parking lot and they send you out on the road. And and that's kind of where we fall short. And even basic rider training, they very seldom do that for street riders. And I don't know why. Uh, we actually do that and conduct that for some of our, our on-road stuff that we do for the military. But it's really focused on, really, on, on our adventure travelers because of the size of the bike, because they're very tall. And let's face it, the, the average rider that comes to me for training is not 20 years old and in the peak of his health. These are 40-year-olds, 50-year-olds, 60-year-olds. Those are my average riders. Okay, so how do we find our balance point or where should we attack here? So what I start off with is I have people stand next to their motorcycle. And I have them bring it up to a very neutral point. So the bike actually is is just standing upright, just with the tires. And the first time they do this, I always recommend, hey, leave the side stand down. That way, if the bike starts to tip, they can just let it tip over the side stand. And they hold it up. And then what they do is hold it with one hand. And then they take the hand. And they when they find that neutral, they just put one finger up on the tank or on the handlebar and just find the balance there. 
And then what I have them do is actually walk all the way, like you were just speaking, walk around the bike. And as they do it, they hold the bike. And what I notice is as I watch riders do this, if they're nervous about it, the bike is also nervous. It's almost like having a dog. It can sense fear. So as they walk around, I have them start to relax. And as they relax, the bike becomes more stable. The other thing I notice is if they look down at the motorcycle, they also struggle because this is a sensory thing. They need to trust the bike and they need to have balance. So if they look up and they talk to people or they look at the horizon as they walk around the motorcycle, just all the way across the front, all the way around the back, all the way around the side, holding the back trunk, that it becomes much easier to understand that. And the same is true when we ride. The bike doesn't take any effort. And that's one of the things we need to learn as we ride the bikes is to do this without burning energy, but also when we're maneuvering the bikes and we're not riding, to find ways to do the same thing there too. So there's no real trick to it, is there? It's not like a, there's, there's not a parlor trick here or anything like that. It's really practice. It, it's understanding of practice. And once you, because they kind of get the idea, okay, if the bike's up on the wheels, then, it, then it's straight. But do the same thing and turn the handlebars full lock one direction or the other. And what you'll notice is, is the bike actually is slightly canted. It's lean just slightly. And that's its balance point because the contact point on the tire moves. And then if you turn it the other way, of course, it leans opposite and it's slightly lean. And the more we do this to understand how that bike balances, the easier it is to maneuver the bike when it's time to just pull it and move it around or to roll it someplace. So here's some tricks. As we do this, we're talking about balance, but also we want to talk about leverage. I don't want people using you know, muscle to hold their bike. So often when we're, we're standing, we can let the bike lean slightly into us. I see this very often running up a truck ramp where you get people wanting to help and you go to, to power this bike up the, the, the ramp or to push it up and everybody standing around wants to keep the bike straight up and down. But the problem is if it starts to tip away from the person that's controlling the bike, it can fall off the ramp. So you actually lean it slightly into you and you let your body brace it. So you're not holding the weight, but you're just bracing um, other things that we can do for leverage, we can turn the bike on the side stand. We can actually tip the bike forward and, and towards us when the side stands down and pivot a 600-pound motorcycle all the way around on the side stand with very little effort. Because as we lean it in towards us, it also comes up to have a neutral point on that side stand. So are you talking pulling the whole bike over on the side stand? Like putting all I, the absolutely. weight on the side stand? Absolutely. And, and what happens is as you pull it up, you leverage it up and the side stand is actually pointed straight up into the frame. So you're not worried about bending the frame because it's actually pivoted directly on top of it. And usually the front wheel is still on the ground. The back wheel kind of comes up and you can pivot it all the way around. You do the same thing for a center stand. If it's on a center stand, you have two feet. But if you tilt it one direction, the other on the foot, you can actually just kind of pull the front or pull the bike, the back of the bike all the way around. And so you're using that very small area to pivot the machine. What are the times when you'd be using these sort of uh, leverage techniques? Well, for me, I've, we've used them at the school. We use them on a very regular basis where we, we store motorcycles in a large container. And so we need to turn the bikes around so we don't have to back them out because it's easier to pull them forward. So we just pull the bike in towards us. We find the balance point on the, the side stand so we're not holding all the weight. And then we just pivot and then we walk the bike straight out. I've done the same thing in a garage. Uh, the other place is often maybe on a trail. 
where you have to get the bike turned around. But here you have this very large motorcycle, very narrow trail, and you can put the side stand down onto a rock or something like this and actually pull it up and pivot it even, even on a trail system. Nice. Uh, talk about neutral balance concepts. So that whole neutral balance, when, when we're riding, we have a lot of different forces that we're trying to neutralize. And as we accelerate, we have the force that pushes us back. When we brake, we have the thrust that pushes us forward. But when we're at idle, we really only have one force that we're trying to neutralize. And we've talked about this in the past during some of our slow ride discussions of slow riding and things like this. But the one force that we're really focused on when we're slow is just that gravity, gravitational force. It goes directly down. So anytime you can get the mass or the, the most of the weight directly above that gravitational point, then the lighter the bike is going to feel. And, and again, you use this not by muscling the bike for you, but if you're trying to pull back on it, you actually hold the bike and you lean back use your own body weight to leverage it back out. Again, all these techniques are much, much easier to do when we're hands-on. Uh, than to try to describe how this works, you know, with voice over the radio. But it's so effective and it's so much easier when you have riders that have bad backs or they have joints or they're, or they're not as, as you know, strong or uh, they don't have a lot of muscle mass to pull their bike up. And that's, that's not an untypical rider for, for what we do out here, whether we want to admit it or not. So again, going back to what I said before, this is this is a lot to do with, um, well, and like you said, learning and, and then practice, going out and doing this and doing it over and over until you're comfortable doing it. Absolutely. And, and the other thing you can do, like anything that you learn, is start small. You know, don't take your don't take your adventure bike that's loaded up with 120 pounds of gear and, and kit and panniers and everything else and have that be the first time you try this. Don't do it while you're out on a trail and you're exhausted. Start with a lighter weight street bike or or better yet, a dirt bike. And just practice pulling these up until you can find what that neutral is. Because when you first do this, it's going to feel very, very odd. Because as you pull it up onto that side stand and you start to get right up on that point of neutral, it almost feels like the bike wants to fall over towards you. But that's the neutral point. That's like watching the guys that do these long distance wheelies. You know, they get up to a neutral point. They don't need a lot of motor or thrust to keep that bike balanced on the back wheel because they found where that neutral point is. We're doing the same thing just to to pivot the bike on a side stand. Okay, you're, you're the next section here, you have dealing with tall saddles and dismounting. Um, what is that about? Okay, so... As we, you know, again, dealing with these very tall, very heavy, you know, motorcycles, when we're looking at it, a lot of riders, they'll come in, they stop, and you see them wrestle to get on and off these motorcycles. Mm, and so course, they, yeah. they come to a stop, and, they, and they're, they have their tiptoes down, and they're trying to do this, and then they're trying to kick out a side stand, but they have a hard time hitting, and then they have to crawl up and over the motorcycle. And again, just way more work, way more work than is needed. So as these, you know, from a... From a dead stop, you know, as far as mounting and dismounting, it's as simple as just using the foot peg to, to mount and dismount. So you can step up and over the saddle. It, again, these bikes are tall. If you step up on the, on the foot peg, it's almost like having a step there. Oh, so you're, you're saying stop the bike, put the stand down, and then use the foot peg to stand and get off the bike. Hey, absolutely. And actually, you can, with practice, you can put the side stand down while you're still in motion. 
come to a stop, the bike will fall over to the side stand. You step off the foot peg and you look really cool. I've done this before, stood on the foot pegs, but I always feel like I'm cheating somehow, you know, because it is, it's extremely easy. It's like taking, getting a little step ladder up. Well, and, and it should almost be a, a standard for us to, to mount and dismount. But do keep in mind, the reason I bring this into this particular subject is it still ties into this idea of neutral balance. Because if you're standing on the high side of the motorcycle, opposite of the side stand, and you step up on the foot peg, and all of a sudden the bike starts to move towards you. It starts to tip your way. What that means is you're putting all your pressure directly down on that foot peg, and you're outside the center of balance. But if you do that same drill and you put your foot on the side stand, place your knee up against the seat, and then pivot forward, almost like you're your head is going across the motorcycle. What you'll find is it moves almost not at all. And, and that's a great place to practice this, to get, be able to get up on the bike and to have that neutral balance. Because when we move to the other side and we step up on the side stand side, what I don't want to do is have my body weight be that, that final straw that breaks the camel's back. I don't want that to be what causes the side stand to have a failure because they can so you're talking about bowing over sort of, you're, you're almost bowing over the bike as you get on. It, it's sort of like um, a diagonal thrust. So again, if you put your foot down, when you stand up, instead of pr- uh, putting pressure down onto your foot, you're actually sort of pressing in with the knee and you pivot up from the knee. And that allows you just to step up and over the bike. So now you're talking about getting on the opposite of, of what would be the, the standard side, because usually you get on the low side, your, your kickstand side. Is there a right or wrong side? Well, and that comes down to, you know, talking about the high ground and low ground. If we're stepping up onto the bike, we want to step up over the gear. Whichever side allows you to get up on that motorcycle, the easiest with the less effort, that's the correct side. Okay, so l- let me ask you this, and this is a situation I think all of us run into sometimes. Sometimes you get onto your bike and it's leaned over far enough towards the kickstand that it's really difficult to pull up. Well, and, and I see that all the time. And my, my wife is a great example. She's, she's petite and yet she rides a large you know, F800GS. With, and certainly with her on it, it's a very large motorcycle. And so when she gets down there, she has, uh, she, she's just barely touching flat-footed uh, or, or maybe on the balls of her feet, depending how much luggage is on it. And so for her to pull that heavy bike upright is very difficult. So what she does is use the same idea knowing that we have a balance point in the center. So once she steps up on the bike, what she can do is actually lean away from the bike, which causes it to pull off the side stand. And then she just puts her right foot back down. So as you mount the motorcycle and swing over, all of your body weight pulls it off side stand. So again, this is something you have to practice, but once you've got it down, that's, that's a swift, sweet move you've got. Absolutely. And, and no matter what training we do, we, we really focus on providing techniques that require little energy and little exhaustion. And, and that's really what it boils down to is less exhaustion. Because the more exhausted you are, the more, exha- the more likely you are to make a mistake or have an accident or get hurt. And so it sounds like something simple. Well, pulling your bike off side stand. But it's all of those things add up. And plus, you look really cool when that bike just pops off side stand instead of looking there and wrestling that thing off. <laughs> so in, in our notes, you have high side versus low side. Yeah, and, and that's kind of where you just address and go, which side's the better side, high side or low side? Okay. And I generally have a tendency to mount high side by preference 
just because of the the technique we were talking about where as I step up over the bike, once my foot hits the other side, I can just sort of swing my body right opposite the side stand and use that to pull it off. And, and you're less likely to, to have the side stand dig into the mud or dirt and have the bike actually tip over. Mm. And that's another benefit of going off the high side. Mm, yeah, that's an excellent point. And also when you sit on the bike too, with the kickstand down, it does tend to straighten the bike back up as well. Yes. And if you think about this, if I'm mounting off the high side and as I stand up, because now I'm peg and peg on both sides. So I'm actually standing up on the bike and I swing it right. I put my right foot to the ground. The bike is now leaning to the right side, and it's much easier to, to sweep the side stand back up because mm-hmm. it's now leaning away. So what about handlebar position? So the, the next question that's kind of logical is, okay, do I have, want the handlebars turned away from me or towards me? And I only bring that up because many people that have done rider ed classes... Or, or wait often, a second, Brett, or turned it all, right? I mean, because some people may not realize that turning it to a lock is an advantage. Or, well, or a disadvantage, depending. Correct. So one of the things that we we see is riders traditionally lock the handlebars onto the side stand side because it makes the bike less likely to roll off a side stand. But it also crowds you when you mount or dismount the motorcycle. So if you turn the handlebars away from you, there's far more room when you mount it, whether it's on the left side or the right side. So turning away from you may be something worth trying just to see how the bike acts. The other thing that that does, as I mentioned during the walk-around drill, when you turn the handlebars left or right, it changes the balance point on the motorcycle just so slightly. And so turning it left or right away from you or towards you may give you an advantage depending exactly what you want the bike to do. When do you use a side stand? That's an interesting one. Well, I bring that up because many bikes have center stands. And so there are times when using the side stand may have an advantage or when the center stand may have an advantage. And since we're talking about moving the motorcycles, uh, sometimes having the side stand down so that you can pivot the motorcycle becomes an advantage. And that's all I was trying to bring up on that one. Mm. Now, also, you have uh, using center stands techniques and tricks for heavily loaded bikes. What are we talking about there? Have you ever, have you ever sat there and watched somebody struggle trying to get their bike up on the center stand and they fight it and they pull it and they call their friends and they fight and they pull and you see this poor motorcycle just being molested by these riders (laughs) trying to get it up onto a center stand. So there's a trick you have. Well, it's not a trick. It's again, just going back to this whole idea of work less, work smart. And it's leverage that allows a bike to get up on center stand. And, and again, I see people struggle with this. The concept is pretty simple. Think of the center stand is almost a scissor action to get it up on the center stand. So it's simply this. Stand the bike up and find the neutral position. So the bike is now vertical. Put your foot on the center stand and place it down so both feet are now touching the ground. The next thing you'll do is stand on the the leverage point for the center stand, grab the bike directly above it. So you're not trying to pull the bike backwards and lift the bike straight up. If you're not as strong, you can actually keep your arms straight locked and use your legs and your body to press down on the center stand and the bike will pop directly back up on the center stand. Mm, I see. Because a lot of people are really thinking that they're pulling the bike backwards. They're jamming the stand down. They're trying to pull the bike backwards to get it to lift up onto the stand. Yeah, I, the two things I see most common is exactly what you just mentioned, which is they try to pull back. And the bike isn't going back. It's going up. 
The second thing is they don't get both feet flat on the ground. So then they're wrestling all the weight. So they need to make sure both are touching and the leverage straight up. And it's so easy when you when you're using proper leverage. Okay, in the notes here it says using terrain features to ease the use of the side stand. All Explain right. that. So when we talk about using terrain features Putting up on center stand is easy when the bike's not loaded, but if you put enough gear on it, the bike squats much lower and it changes the leverage ratio. Sure, because you're depending on the shock to help lift it up, right? When you're, when you're lifting Well, it up. exactly. It sits a little higher in the ground, so it sits up taller. Mm-hmm. So the lower the bike sits, the more, the more you have to lift. Uh, not just weight, but also just because of the angle of the center stand itself. So one of the things I often do, especially uh, this often comes into play when I need to do like chain maintenance or change a tire or something like this while traveling and the bike's very loaded. And so there are things we can do to make it much easier for us. So how do we do that? Well, find some place where you can run the front tire a little higher and the center of the bike where the center stand is just sits a little bit lower. And that way you create additional height. And that way, when you pull the, the bike up, it can pop up on center stand. This will work very well if the back tire is in sand or dirt or some sort of soft terrain. Because once you get it up on center stand, your back tire might be touching the ground, so it doesn't roll as freely. And then what you can do is actually just use the motor to power it, and it'll dig a small trough right there. And then the bike can freewheel for chain maintenance or, or for pulling the tire off. So you're just trying to take advantage of going, hey, let's put the tire front high on both sides, low in the middle. And that makes it a lot less height to bring it up. Same one of the issues that when people stop and they stop with both tires high, they put a foot down and there's no ground there. Except this time we're looking for it because it's a benefit. Mm, that's very good. I like that. I hadn't thought of actually spinning the, the wheel, powering the wheel to dig the trench so that you can spin the chain around. I, I'm always looking for a different spot. Well, I'm just lazy. <laughs> I, I, well, I actually, others call me lazy. I just say I'm efficient. Efficiency is good. Maneuvering a bike manually, so power versus no power. There's two ways to move a motorcycle around if we need to do, like, for example, again, uh, putting in or out of a lobby. And very often what you'll see is somebody pushing their motorcycle up a ramp or trying to push it up some steps or, or people behind it pushing it, which is a no power thing. And there are times you can do this very well, and that's if it's flat ground in a lobby. And again, this I see people kind of wrestle around the bike. But if you put the bike up on that balance point, if you just practice until you're very, very comfortable with that bike being in that neutral position, you can stand directly next to it and you can push from the back, you can push from the front, standing beside the bike I'm referring to. So if I'm standing facing the motorcycle, I can put one hand on the front of the bike and one hand towards the back of the bike and actually just walk beside it backwards or forwards. And I'm not holding that weight. Now you just mentioned having a friend help and I think this is probably good to bring up here. When you have two people maneuvering the motorcycle, should both people be holding the handlebars? Should one person be in charge of that? What's the best position for it? Because you see a lot of confusion often when you get more than one person maneuvering a, a bike that's not running. Well, whoever has the handlebars is in charge. So the you know pushing from behind, as long as they're talking to each other and having the person push from behind while the other one controls the handlebars, that usually works out very well. Where I think I see the largest confusion is when they're going up steps or a ramp and one person is at the bars pushing, and the other person on the back is trying to help by pulling the bike back to vertical. They're not letting the bike lean slightly into the rider that has, or the 
person that has control of the bike going up. So I think the most critical thing is talk to each other, know what's going on. And then again, somebody has to have charge for who's, who's balancing the motorcycle. I just don't stand it upright. Again, if a bike falls into me, if I'm standing next to it, it can lean into me pretty far and I can use my body to leverage and maintain control of that motorcycle. Even a 600-pound bike, because I'm not holding on my shoulders, I'm only holding a portion of that weight. But if that motorcycle starts to tip away from me, it's going to go with me and we're just going to fly off the other side because there's no way for me to hold it back. Well, I was excited about the hotel lobbies. I'm sure a lot of people are interested in this because it's a scary point, right? Because you're in a in a place where you don't want to drop the bike and there's people around, etc. Now we talked about no power there. What about power? Power is this is this is one of my absolute favorite things. I again prefer efficiency, and we uh, in the time in the past we've talked about using you know clutch and throttle to you know control the bike and in very fine environments, you know, where you don't want slip or you don't want wheel spin. And also if you're stuck in mud or sand and you want to get off the bike and get it out of this, out of the, the sand or the, uh, the mud, we'll use the power of the motorcycle to walk it out. Well, that same skill set can be used to run it up a ramp of a truck or into a lobby, but it's very good to be comfortable with this. And I know it may sound silly, but what I can actually recommend is take your motorcycle for a walk. Take it out to a big parking lot, take it out there, get off the motorcycle, put it in gear, have the motorcycle run, stand next to the motorcycle and just use the throttle and clutch and take your motorcycle for a walk. Get very comfortable being able to do that. Because if you do it when it's flat, then it's much easier when it starts to get elevated. Uh, I load into motor uh, motorcycles in the back of the truck all the time and I'll put a, a small uh, box down on the back of the truck because a step to get in. And as I walk the motorcycle forward, I just walk up, I step on the box and continue walking in. At any point, if I stop that motorcycle to do a lot of maneuvering, I run a greater risk of stalling or tipping or having to back down off the ramp. That burns energy. It also increases risk. There's always more opportunity for something to go wrong. So practice to begin with, plan it, and then follow it right through. You know, it's kind of funny as we're talking about all this, I, I'm finding more and more associations of my motorcycle and dogs. I really like dogs. But, you know, when you're nervous, your motorcycle gets nervous. And my, I think my motorcycle likes when I take it for a walk. I think that's an excellent uh, comparison there. I think that's really good. You have a specific listener exercise here. How do we do that? So uh, as far as uh, the exercises, I've got several here that I think are, are really good. Um, the first one is to go back to talking about understanding the balance. And, and I've alluded to some of these as we went along. But the first one is Sorry, just Sorry, Brad, l- let me just start yes. off by saying that, like, really, I mean, I think, and I get this from talking to you because I learned so much when I speak to you. The best way to do this is to go to um, some sort of training, either your training or somebody's training, and get this firsthand. That's obviously the first thing. I just want to say that to be clear. And of course, I agree. And I, I really hope that the listeners that, that get this, that don't have training next to them or, or nearby or are unable to come out and, and visit me and attend one of our, our training expeditions or one of our training camps, that there's, that there's a help. But certainly... There's no replacement for hands-on, for having somebody show you this, for having the experience with the hands-on. So 
back to our, our exercise, um, walk around activity. So the walk around activity, again, this is one that we do as a warm up for our camps and our training expeditions is that very first thing where we stand the motorcycle up and we do a complete tour around the bike clockwise, then counterclockwise all the way around each time trying to have less and less contact with the motorcycle each time trying to get more and more comfortable with that activity. As long as you still feel yourself grabbing the motorcycle, you're not relaxed yet. And the more often you do this, the easier everything else after this becomes. So that, I think that's a great activity. And the better your bike feels. Yeah, and you can do it in the winter when you can't go riding. Oh, that's a very good point. Yeah, if you don't want to take your motorcycle for a walk, at least spend some time with it. Now, do you have someone standing there ready to catch the bike if something goes wrong? Well, two things. Don't have anything nearby that will break if the bike falls over. Good point. That, that's a good start. Mm-hmm. And the second thing is when you first start doing this, Put the side stand down because if it starts to tilt, usually you have some control over which direction it's going to go and just let it fall into the side stand side. It won't fall over. Nothing gets hurt. There's no risk and there's no danger or at least very little. Okay. So how about center stand practice? Um, Center stand practice. Start with the bike light on a very level ground. And if you haven't done this a lot, possibly to elevate one of the wheels just slightly. For example, you can run the front wheel or the back wheel up onto like a two by four or a two by six, the wider the better. What that does is it elevates the bike so that the side stand can get all the way down, touch, and you have less weight to pick up. So if you've struggled with this a lot, start by making it easy, even a one by six, something very small, and then do it while the bike's completely flat. And then you can start practicing with more weight or to use other terrain features to do the same thing. And again, If you struggle with the center stand, you don't want to do that while you're traveling. That's not the time to burn yourself out. Do the stuff in the winter when you're bored. Have nothing else to do. Now, side stand pivots, I would imagine the best place to try this is on a hard surface. Um, Concrete. Smooth concrete, preferably something that if it gets gouged, you're not too worried about it. Um, For the most part, that's not a huge issue. You can even take and put a very small, uh, like a plastic puck or a small piece of wood directly on the side stand. Um, So as it leans over and it pivots, it actually makes it easier to pivot. Um, When you do this, put the side stand down, have the handlebars turn towards you, reach across the back of the seat, and then pull that towards you. So it's not the seat itself, but like a handrail or a luggage rail or something like that. That way, when you reach across, your body's over the top of the bike. And when you lean back and pull the bike towards you, you'll end up coming to a very stable position and the bike will lean into you. Realize again, the bike's going to have to come almost almost vertical on that, that size stand before it becomes completely weightless. Your back end will now be in the air. The front end will be on the ground. And at that point, you can now just slowly walk the bike around or pivot it uh, as it leans up against your hip. You'll have the front end kind of roll around. The back will pivot. It's one of the slickest, coolest, neatest things you'll ever do when you do it right. And if anything goes wrong, you just put it down away from the stand then? Yep, exactly. Worst case, it tips away from you, usually just right down on the tires. So again, it sounds risky, but um, it's not too bad. And of course, uh, much better if, if you have somebody there that knows what they're doing. Uh, so a friend that knows how to do this or, or again, come to us and, and we'll show you how to do it. Rolling dismounts. Oh now, now this sounds, I got to tell you, Brad, this, this sounds a little circus-like. <laughs> oh, this is the coolest thing. So I, I'm out at Tour Tech Rally here again this year. And 
every year I try to come up with something new. So we do all of our um, adventure essentials classes and we do obstacle classes and we do women only classes and we have all these neat things we do at the rallies, whether it's on the East Coast or the West Coast. This year I decided to do something different and I'm doing a class. It's called Poser Skills, Learning to Do What You Shouldn't Do. Now it sounds kind of ominous, but what I'm actually looking at is Showing things that look like they're kind of poser and excitable skills, whether they look good on camera or whatever else, but actually have very practical purpose. And one of those skills is called a rolling dismount. Here's what happens. Many riders, as they ride up to something, realize that when they come to the stop, that the earth may be far, far away from their reach. So if they're up on a high point or the left side is where they need to step because the traction's there and the right side is too slick to put down, so they have to step down. Or their legs are too short. Exactly. So you start going, gosh, you know, when I stop, I'm not going to be able to put my feet down. I I have stories with this, but I'm not going to go there (laughs) because I've certainly done this myself. So what we do is as we ride... You'll actually take and take your one year. I usually start on the left side because people are accustomed to going off the left side. But as you ride, you're in a standing position and the bike starts to slow. You pull in the clutch. You take your right foot and you bow it across the seat. So it's now parallel to the left leg. And then you start to apply the front brake just so gradually. As the bike comes to a complete stop, your right leg steps all the way down to the ground. Your left foot steps off the foot peg. You look marvelous. And of course, because you understand balance, you hold the end of the bar, you let it, uh, the bike lean slightly away from you, using your body to counterweight it. You reach up with one foot, put down the side stand, pull it towards you, turn around and walk away. And the bike gradually and gently sets down on its side stand and everybody around you goes, that guy or that gal is absolutely an amazing rider. That is cool. Now, I've done that with a bicycle more when I was a kid, not so much now. <laughs> but, but the motorcycle, that is cool. It, it really is. And when we do this as an activity during uh, during the camps is where we do this a lot, we actually do what's called follow the leader. It's kind of a, a Simon Says thing. And, and we'll ride. And, and the riders behind us have to do whatever we do as the instructors. And so we'll ride and we'll put our left hand in the air. Or we'll put our right foot out in the air. And we kind of sneak them into this. They never know what's actually about to happen and we'll put our knee on the seat and we'll sit down and we'll stand up and then we'll take and we'll put that left leg right behind that or the right leg right behind the left leg we'll come to a stop and we'll step off and i'll look behind me and every single rider does it because they have it but if i tell them ahead of time many would be rather nervous moving under power um how would you practice that so moving under power uh this is the The practice, I would say, is critical for getting up into those hotel lobbies, loading into trucks. And where I would start that is taking your motorcycle for a walk, as I described earlier, which is getting out in the parking lot or down the street so your neighbors can all watch you take your motorcycle for a walk. You start the motorcycle, put it in gear, and standing on the left side, usually to start with, because that's where we're most comfortable, we just use the clutch and the power of the motorcycle to power it forward. And we walk along beside it. We never let the motorcycle pull us and we never go so slow that we have to push the motorcycle. The goal is, is to do this effortlessly and to become very comfortable using power, have the motorcycle turn it around, walk it into a figure eight. You're just getting extremely comfortable standing next to it and powering it when you're not on it. 
Now, when you're doing that, are you slipping the clutch the whole time or are you letting, uh, feathering a little bit and then pulling it in, out and in? All the above. Okay. So it really depends where I'm going. If I'm walking up a hill, then it's going to stay under power. If I'm going down a hill, the clutch is in and I'm just feathering or uh, applying pressure to the front brake. So you're just learning to figure out how much brake you need, how much power you need, and become very comfortable having control of it while not astride the motorcycle. And I'm assuming now when you're saying this, you're leading into, we're going to try this on a plank. Exactly. So the next step of this, uh, this thing, again, rather than risk dropping my motorcycle you know, going up a long ramp, uh, the next thing is do like a, a two by six or a two by eight and power the motorcycle up on the two by eight while it's just laying flat on the ground. It's only about an inch and a half height and then power it off the other side. Then you can put it up onto like a four-inch curb, and you just practice powering your motorcycle up on this ramp so you're slightly below the bike. And this is where it starts getting a little more uncomfortable for people learning is the bike's going to actually rise up, so you're reaching up over the seat to maintain this control. And you can keep raising that elevation point until you're comfortable so that when you're at a hotel lobby, and this is not uncommon, when you're traveling abroad, for the, the hotel owners to, to move stuff aside inside their home or inside their lobby so you can bring the motorcycle in. But often it means going up many steps or, or a steep ramp or, or steep steps. And so this isn't the time to, to power your motorcycle up and then accidentally launch it through their their home. Uh, but as you stand next to it, you can very confidently and comfortably power it up the ramp into the lobby, shut it off, put the side stand down, and again, look very competent and be safe. Don't risk yourself or, or anybody around you. And before I let you go here, now I saw some notes about you doing more on the East Coast coming up. Is, is that for next year? Yeah, so 2017. So we've done a couple things on the East Coast over the over the years. We did a, a rally with ADB Moto. We've done an adventure camp with um, Twisted Throttle. And we've had a lot of requests out here. Now, obviously, we've done a lot of military over the last seven years, but civilian stuff over here has, has kind of been hit or miss. But we have a lot of requests, and there's a growth of an ADB community on the East Coast. And so this next year, we've talked and... Uh, we're looking at doing training at the, the Dirt Days Rally again next year, which is a, a partner rally to the Americade. We're looking at doing uh, more training with ADB Moto. We did it last year. We're doing it this year. Uh, we expect to do it again next year. So we'll have those sort of courses, these ADB Essentials and some sort of advanced training at each of those events. Twisted Throttle wants to sponsor and do another um, special edition adventure camp like we do on the West Coast, but over here. So they'll use their facility. We'll be able to camp there. They're going to host it. We have a great farm there with lots of area to work with training. We have some really nice back roads and some trails that have been put out. He's got some great staff that help us put that all together. And then we're also, we've been talking to uh, Moto Vermont, which is uh, a company that's interested. They've been doing some adventure training stuff and tours, but they're not experts in it. And they prefer to bring experts in that they can. And so we've talked to them about doing that next year. And so at this point, we're just working out the details to make that happen. Brett, thanks very much once again. Absolutely fantastic. Uh, always a pleasure and can't wait till next time. And of course, that was Brett Tax from PSSOR, or Puget Sound Safety Off-Road. And you can find out more about Brett and the courses that he offers. I highly recommend them. I mean, you must have heard, if you've heard him here, we've had him eight or nine episodes now. Um, 
I've learned so much over these eight or nine episodes talking with Brett just by listening to him. You can imagine what you're going to learn by taking one of these courses. So PSSOR.com. Of course, let them know that you heard him here on Adventure Rider Radio. He has um, training camps. He has expeditions. Um, there, there's two different styles. I know uh, I've talked about this before. They do the camps. They're basically setting up at one spot and then going out and learning. This, this is the neat thing about this. Um, from what he's told me about these courses, is that it's all environmental learning. It's not a it's not a classroom thing. You're not uh, you know in a in a, uh, a parking lot or, a, or an asphalt area. This is the real world stuff where they're teaching you in real terrain. They also have um, the expedition training courses, and that's the one I think where you're going on the multi day expedition. You're actually going out overnight. That to me would be my choice for it. But he's got dates for 2016 and 2017 on here. And as you heard, he's going to be doing things on the east coast for 2017. So So if you're interested in getting some training, you're interested in learning how to ride your bike slowly, more efficiently, and and you can hear the tips that Brett has here, um, just making you a much better rider, PSSOR.com. So, of course, I don't know if you're running beadlocks or not. Um, I'm not on my bike. But uh, if you are and you've changed your tires yourself, you find it's a real pain in the butt, no doubt. Well, we just got a press release here a little while ago from David at Best Rest Products. And um, this is one of the reasons I think Best Rest is so great. They're always looking for new, innovative ways to solve a problem. Well, in this case, he's he's come up with the bead spreader. And the bead spreader is basically um, sort of a a lever clip that connects to Best Rest tire irons and um, makes it so you can spread the tire to get your hands in there and work and everything. It's a really neat product. Anyway, you can uh, drop by Best Rest Products and and look at it. As a matter of fact, they have a website just for this called www.beadspreader.com. The other thing that hit our inbox recently was from Christophe Barrier Verjou. Now, you remember Christophe. We had him on here. We talked about his bid for the Dakar and the movie he made about it called Dream Racer, which was an amazing movie. And not like another movie that came out recently that made a big splash. <laughs> Dream Racer really was a good movie. In any case, um, he's uh, he's been picked up by National Geographic. Go figure after a movie like Dream Racer. And and by the way, if you want to buy that movie, which you, you can see the, the, pre, the previews, the trailers for free, but if you you want to see the movie, you actually have to buy it. You can use the promo code ARR. I can't remember what it gets you off the film. We don't get anything from it, but you'll get something off the film for it, and you, you can do that and save a bit of money when you buy the film. But in any case, so Christoph has been picked up by National Geographic to do um, a, a journey of a lifetime, they call it. Um, they're riding through Morocco, following the former tracks of the Paris Dakar rally. And it's a National Geo program. This is pretty amazing. But it's not only Christoph Barrier Verjou, he's not the only one riding. The other person riding with them is an Australian fashion model called Laura. Sorton, maybe it's Sorton, Laura Sorton. Um, but in any case, so the two of them are going to be riding. They're going to be picked up. They're on television. They're going to be riding two um, Honda African twins. So obviously, Honda must have got in there and sponsored it. And um, it's supposed to be broadcast uh, beginning June 14th in over 170 countries. So um, it's on now, I guess. And check it out. Look at the National Geographic uh, Channel website. I'll, I'll bet it's going to be amazing. As soon as I can, I'm, I'm going to have to look at that.
This episode is brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles, serving adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories available online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter, too. It's free. That's maxbmw.com. And Best Rest Products, home of Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire and Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. You know, whether you're on the road or off the road, you'll need a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system and will inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, and get this, it comes with a lifetime warranty. It's the pump we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Visit them at CyclePump.com. That's CyclePump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles, tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. Green Chili Adventure Gear is also the exclusive USA distributor for Outback Motor Tech, a Canadian company that specializes in high-quality protection for motorcycles. Visit them at www.greenchiliadv.com. Greenchiliadv.com. that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. There's no excuses. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Oh wait, if you like the show and you want to keep it free, you want to keep it coming to you free, it's built on a model of having some advertisements supported by listeners as well. So drop by our website, click on the donate button and send us what you can. $10 or more will get you a gift thrown back in the mail back at you in the form of a sticker and the smaller amounts and as you get up to the bigger amounts well there's bigger gifts so go by and check it out adventureriderradio.com and click on the donate button we also have another show that you'd be interested in called ARR Raw if you haven't already heard about it before remember you have to subscribe separately you can go by our website www.adventureriderradio.com and uh, click on the shows button you'll find Raw in there in the RSS feed button or you can go to iTunes or wherever else you listen to your podcast from and you can download ARR Raw subscribe to that one separately Special thanks to our co-producer, Elizabeth Martin, who works tirelessly in the background. My name's Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. See you next week. from the Black Forest in southern Germany, and you are listening to Adventure Rider Radio.